Money. Just go ahead and get that out there. Everybody's favorite subject, especially in a church, especially when we're listening to a preacher standing on a pulpit somewhere. Money. Now, if you grew up in the church or Even if you've just been in the church a little while, you have probably heard several sermons on money. You probably have a general idea of what the Bible says about money. Matthew 19, right? Jesus famously tells us that it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get in heaven. Uh, First Timothy. Paul talks about how, how the love of money is the root of all evil. We've all heard these concepts and we're all very, very quick to point out, yes, but, but it's the love of money. It's not money itself, pastor, which is true. That is absolutely true. Money itself is amoral. It is neutral. It does not have a life. It does not have a soul. It does not make decisions. It is a tool. This book has over 2,000 verses pertaining to money or wealth or possessions. That's over twice as many verses pertaining to money and wealth than there are pertaining to faith and prayer combined. So yes, money is amoral. Money is neutral. But it is obviously a big deal. To put it a different way, money is neutral, but God's word is not neutral about it. Now, Sermons on money, sermons on finances tend to make us a little bit apprehensive, a little bit nervous for several reasons, not the least of which is they tend to come up right around budget time. They tend to roll around when there's uh, a capital campaign, a building campaign. They tend to focus on giving to the church and tithing, all of which is important. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept of tithing, tithing is um, the command that we give 10% of our finances, of our earnings, of the things we produce during the year directly to God through the form of giving to the church. We see it throughout the scripture. You see it as early as uh, Genesis 18, 24, all throughout the Old Testament. This, this concept of tithing is reinforced. Now, before you get too excited and you say, okay, Hannah, that's all well and good, but, but it's really an Old Testament concept and, and we're living under the New Covenant and the New Testament. Let me go ahead and remind you that Jesus multiple times reinforces the command to tithe, Matthew 23, several other places. Also, let me remind you that the New Testament teaching on giving 
is actually far more comprehensive. And there is a greater call to generous giving in the New Testament. So if, if your plan is to use tithing as an Old Testament concept so that you can get out of our responsibility to tithe, I would caution you from walking too far down that road because you are not going to like where it ends. I got good news for you. This morning is not a tithing sermon. This summer, we are in the middle of a sermon series talking about whole life stewardship. The, the, the idea of, of being sold out, being all in in our pursuit of our Savior as we, as we follow Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we kind of started to lay the foundation for what stewardship means. Uh, the careful, responsible, intentional management of the resources with which God has blessed us, doing so for kingdom purposes. Last week, we started by talking about what it looks like to steward our faith intentionally, responsibly growing in our spiritual maturity as we continue to follow Jesus. This morning, we get to that terrifying sermon on financial stewardship. But when I say it is not a uh, sermon on tithing, I mean that. So often we in the church consider those two things to be synonyms financial stewardship and tithing. This morning, we are going to start to get away from that fallacy. See, understand this. Tithing, that is a bare minimum in the scripture. That's minimum requirements. And when we start to believe that financial stewardship and tithing are the exact same thing, it brings up a couple of misconceptions. First of all, It brings up the idea of if we are generous and bless God with 10% of our income, then we get to do whatever we want with the other 90%. We've been, we've been generous, right? We, we are, we are great philanthropists for the church by writing our tithe check. The second misconception is the idea of us blessing God again with 10%. Therefore, the other 90% is ours. Remember, the, the concept of stewardship is based on the foundational idea that God, the one true God, the creator of the universe, the lover of our souls, is the creator of, owner of, and sovereign over everything, including every single penny in my bank account, not just 10%. Imagine if you were in school and you got a check or you got a test back and you received a grade of 10, not 10 out of 10, but, but 10 out of a hundred, like 10% a miserably failing grade. But then imagine you get that grade back of 10% and you're proud of it. When we say the whole of financial stewardship is tithing 10%, that is what we are doing. We're saying we've done really good at 10%. I'm super proud of that. But do you understand how far we have to stray from the subject matter to get 90% of it wrong? 
That's what financial stewardship looks like. You see, you see, giving, tithing, that is an act. Generosity, that is an attitude. But stewardship is a role. Giving is merely the um, releasing of something of value. It can be done without generosity. You can give without being generous. Look throughout the New Testament as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They loved to give. They made a big public spectacle of it, but it was all about them. It had nothing to do with generosity. Now, generosity is making a sacrifice for the benefit of others. It will always include giving. It will always include releasing something of value. And it, and it also includes sacrifice, personal sacrifice, for the benefit of others. Giving and generosity are both important aspects of financial stewardship. But they are not a complete definition of financial stewardship. As a matter of fact, a primary responsibility of stewardship is the management of the resources that are not given away. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we kind of used the example of a hotel steward. You go to a hotel, you check in back in the before when you could actually check into hotels. Um, you go to a hotel and you check in and while you're at the front desk, your suitcases are sitting there and the hotel steward comes and takes your luggage and takes them up to your room. He is performing the function of a steward. There is a period of time that he is wholly and entirely responsible for your luggage. But at no point in time does he have ownership over your luggage. His job is to understand your desires, which is to get your luggage from the front desk to your room, and to perform your will. Now, considering he has responsibility over your luggage, he could certainly take your luggage somewhere else. He could put it in his trunk and take it home. He would not be a good steward because, his, because that luggage is not his luggage. Now, as we're teaching as we're exploring the idea of financial stewardship, what it looks like to be good managers of the resources with which God has blessed us, there are countless places in the scriptures we could go. You know, you could go back to, to Genesis, the, the story of Joseph and, and the house of Potiphar. One of my favorite places to go is in Proverbs where there's so many verses about money and financial stewardship. And at the end of Proverbs chapter 31, that famous picture of a noble wife as, as the author of Proverbs paints this picture of this incredible godly woman. We learn so much from her, and so much of it is how she handles her business. She works hard. She works smart. She thinks of others. She is not afraid of the future because of the way she is managing the resources she has been blessed with. Um, She is incredibly generous to those in need. Jesus teaches on financial stewardship. Luke 12, Luke 16, so many other places. But this morning where I wanted us to go is the classic, maybe most famous parable on stewardship that we're going to find in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read this in just a couple of minutes. We're going to start in verse 14. When we do read it, know this. 
We don't have the kind of super fancy technology that allows the, the words to come on the bottom of the screen. It's on the screen behind us. So every time I read, Brandon is going to hit a button and it's going to be like a Michael Bay film and everything's going to explode real fast. So just understand that's what it's going to look like. And we're all in this thing together. But before we start to read from Matthew 25, let's, let's look at the context. This is the famous parable of the talents. Jesus has already entered into uh, Jerusalem. It's Passion Week. We are days from his um, arrest and execution. Jesus has already had several run-ins this week with the Pharisees. He's teaching in the, in the temple. He gives us a lengthy discourse that includes several parables. And, and as Jesus is teaching in the temple in that last week, he's preparing the people for his arrest, his execution, his resurrection, his ascension, and for his eventual return. It's in that context that Jesus teaches the parable of the talents. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a long journey. Did it explode? Did, it, did you see it back there? No? Okay. For it's just like a man about to go on a long journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on the journey. Okay, a couple of things before we go on in this parable, a couple of things that we need to recognize just from these first two verses. A, the master knew his servants and he knew them well. He had these three servants that had risen up through the ranks. They had probably already been given responsibility. He knew them intimately. He knew the ins and outs. He knew what made them tick. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. He knew what filled them up. He knew what drained them such that each servant, he gave responsibility over a different percentage of his estate. Now, before we, we start to feel sorry for the servant that was given two talents or the servant that was given one talent, it's important to understand how much money we're talking about here. Now, a talent wasn't a coin. It was actually a measure of weight equal to about 6,000 denarii. A denarii was uh, one day's wage. There was a six-day work week. If you do all that math really quickly, what you come out with is one talent is equal to between 19 and 20 years' wages. Using the, the median per capita income in Nashville, Tennessee... That math would say that today, one talent would be worth a little over a million dollars. So yes, the master gave different amounts to each servant according to their abilities because he knew them well and he knew them intimately. But to each one, he gave a small fortune. This is a great sum of money that we're talking about. It's also important to, to see from these first couple of verses the trust that the master had in his people. He could have given them these large sums of money and then written out detailed instructions. This is exactly what I want you to do with this money. 
with this amount, with this fortune, with my estate. But instead, he displays this incredible uh, trust by giving them responsibility over his estate. That trust and responsibility highlights the intimacy of their relationship. All right, back to Matthew 25. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on the journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man who earned two, two, I'm sorry, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. All right. So we've got these three servants. They know and are known by their master. They are given responsibility over different percentages of his estate based on their abilities. The first servant, the one that was given five talents, it says he immediately went out and began to work. That word immediately shows us the enthusiasm that he had. He was so excited to be trusted by his master, so excited to be trusted to to manage this portion of his estate. And, And with great enthusiasm, he immediately goes out and goes to work. The second servant, given 40% of what the first servant was given, we see that, that he, in the same way, shows the exact same excitement and enthusiasm to be trusted, to be given this responsibility over his master's estate. If I were the second servant, that is not how I would have reacted. See, when I was a kid, anybody that knows me and my sister, you know that we are very, very different people. As such, my parents being incredibly wise, in many seasons of our life had to interact with us in different ways. When we were younger, my sister displayed probably more responsibility, we'll say, than than I did. Because of that, she got a car earlier in her life than I got a car. When I found out this was going to happen, I remember going to my dad and saying, Dad, I need you to know that if you're not careful, I'm just going to grow up and be bitter. And I will never forget his response. He looked at me and he said, Hannah, don't be bitter. That was it. That was the end of the conversation. Just don't be bitter. The, the simplicity and truth in those words have stuck with me to this day. And I, I read this passage. I think about that second servant. And I think if that were me, I would have looked at my master and said, If you're not careful, I'm going to be bitter. Look at what you gave him compared to what you gave me. But this second servant, he wasn't bitter at all. He held no ill feelings. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. He was grateful and enthusiastic and joyful that he had been given this responsibility, this trust by his master. And he went out and he worked immediately following the master's will, working for his master. Now, the third servant, That's where things start to go off the rails a little bit. He reacts completely different than the first two. He goes the conservative route. He digs a hole, he puts the money in it, and he buries it. Now, 
He knew the master just like the first two. He knew the master intimately. As a matter of fact, we see that a little bit later in this passage. He knew the master, but he probably didn't seem to be quite clear on the master's will, the master's wishes. Either he wasn't clear or he didn't care to find out. Because we see he acted out of fear, out of selfishness. He chose the path of security rather than the path of service. He digs the hole, he buries the money. Now understand this, in that time, burying money in the ground was an absolutely readily accepted form of saving money, of keeping it safe. As a matter of fact, rabbinic law absolved anyone of responsibility if something happened to the money, if they had gone and buried it. Which means this guy, one of the things he was doing was absolving himself of responsibility. If something goes wrong, it's not my fault. I'm just going to dig a hole and bury it, and I'm walking away. The second thing that he did by digging a hole and burying this money is he ensured that if something happened to the master, if the master never did return, he gets the money. He's the only one that knows where it's buried. He could have gone and put it in a bank, but if he puts it in a bank, the bank would have registered ownership of that financial sum to his master's estate. If something happens to the master and he doesn't return, then that money goes through all of the estate and inheritance laws. It goes to the family. It doesn't go to the servant. But this way, the servant knows he's going on a long trip. We live in a dangerous world. If he doesn't come back, I've got 20 years worth of wages coming to me. You see, the third servant thought about himself and didn't think about the master. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants did come back and settled the accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned you five more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. So this master who had, who had gone on the journey and trusted his servants so much with, with so much responsibility over his state, he does come back and let's look at what he did. He goes, he goes to the first one. The first, the, the first servant had doubled his talents, earned five more talents. That is nearly a hundred years worth of wages. The second servant, two more talents, 40 years worth of wages. Now, there's 60 years difference worth of wages and the amount of money those two servants earned. But the master treats them with equal joy and enthusiasm. Well done, good and faithful servants. Share in my joy. He is so excited 
to be back with his people, to be back with his servants. He's so proud of what they have done. And, and what does he do? He says, you have been responsible over a few things. Now I will give you responsibility over many things. He gives them a promotion. There's a couple of things I want, you to, I want you to think about, about this promotion. First of all, the servants do a great job managing the master's estate. And they get a promotion, not retirement. It's not well done, good and faithful servant. You have checked off the box. Now you can sit back and do nothing. The reward for good work is more work. Secondly, as he says, I've given you responsibility. You've done done well with responsibility over a few things. Now you will have responsibility over many things. He does not reward them with wealth. He gives them responsibility, a management responsibility over a greater percentage of his estate. But they themselves do not become wealthy. Oftentimes we read this parable, we read passages like it, we hear it taught, and it gets misinterpreted as. If you do well with a little bit of money, you will be honored with great financial success. That is not what this says. You will be given more responsibility to manage more things. They are not your things. You are given more responsibility to manage more kingdom resources. They are not your resources. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. You can just see this servant as the master begins to approach. I I guarantee you at first, when he sees the master on the horizon, at first there's disappointment. Remember, if the master doesn't come back, that money's his. He had probably already spent it in his mind. He's going to get himself a nice little beach cottage there at the Dead Sea. Get to hang out, kick his feet up, take some time off. But as soon as he sees the master, all of that poof, it's out the window. Then he sees the other two servants and what they offer the master. And I'm sure disappointment turns to fear. His knees are knocking as he walks towards the master. We've all been there in school. You know, you're assigned a diorama about the book you read, but it's not due for three months and and three months is never going to happen. And if it does happen, we're going to be in flying cars and, and school's going to be done in holograms and who's going to care about a diorama at that point. So you don't really do anything. And then the night before, eh, you grab a shoebox, let's throw some action figures in there. It'll be fine. When you walk into class the next day, a couple of people go before you with their projects and their dioramas have working lights and, and 
living plants and smoke machines, and you're sitting there with your shoebox with a couple of action figures in it. You try to spin it as best you can, but you know, I messed up here. That's exactly where this servant is as he comes to the master. He's like, hey, hey, I know that you're a harsh man. I know what you do with your money. I've seen how you handle your business. And so I just wanted to make sure that everything was going to be safe. So that's what I did for you. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given and he will have more than enough. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's kind of harsh, right? Let's, let's take a second and just kind of give a summary of this whole parable. What it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean it is our job as Christ followers to make the kingdom rich. And it also doesn't mean if we don't earn money for the kingdom that we're going to burn in hell. That's, that's not what this parable says. That's not what Jesus was teaching the people as he was preparing them for his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and eventual return. What this parable does say is God loves us. God knows us intimately. And God gives us great kingdom responsibilities. We are to take that seriously. We are to seek his will, manage his resources for his glory and for kingdom purposes. It also says that he sees, he sees us He sees the decisions we make, and he sees what we do. All right, Hannah, I get it. On paper, it all makes sense. It's a great story. Everything we have is his. We're to manage all of our finances with with him in mind for kingdom purposes. That sounds great, but I live in the real world. I love the idea of it, but I've got bills to pay. I've got kids that I need to feed. And you know what? Every once in a while, I want to go on a vacation and I deserve it. All of that is true. You live in the real world. You have bills to pay. You have mouths to feed. And you probably deserve some time off. Those are good things. God wants those things for us. God recognizes those things. Remember before we got into this series on whole life stewardship, we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five, six, and seven for about three months. And in that sermon, Jesus tells us that God knows our needs. He's aware of our needs. He's not sitting up in heaven on his throne, ignorant until we come to him and we're like, Hey, Hey God, um, 
I, I really could use a vacation. And he thinks, oh, gosh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, that's a good idea. Let's figure out how to make that happen. Jesus teaches us that God is aware of our needs. He's aware of our financial situation. He also teaches that he will provide for us. Remember, consider the wildflowers, the birds of the air. If God is going to take care of them, how much more will he also take care of you? That, that is not a teaching that we should just sit back on our couch, kick our feet up, and wait for God to provide everything. It is understanding that God loves us, knows our needs, and will make sure that we are taken care of. He will absolutely provide for our needs, not necessarily our wants, but everything that we need. God doesn't want us to worry about money. Remember, don't be anxious. He wants us to seek him worship him not worship money and you can't do both says jesus in matthew chapter six so if stewardship whole life stewardship is an act of worship as paul teaches us in romans chapter 12 and if god's word teaches us so much on money and possessions and wealth, gives us so many warnings about how dangerous it can be. The real question that we need to be asking ourselves is, are we worshiping God with our finances? Or are we worshiping our finances? Each of us are stewards. Each of us has been given resources by God to manage for his glory. It's his resources to begin with. Do we recognize our role as managers of the kingdom estate and not owners? Do we understand and embrace the purpose of our role as managers and stewards? Are we enthusiastic and excited about the responsibility with which we've been entrusted? And are we living and fulfilling that responsibility as though the master will return any day? It's real and it's important. Give to those in need with great generosity. It's real and it's important. And remember that that which remains is his and not ours. We are called to manage and not own. And the way we think about our finances is a strong indicator of the way we think about our God. Do we know him? Do we trust him? Are we honored? with the responsibility he has given us.
He knows you. He loves you. We are all blessed with the opportunity to enter in to the master's service. Would you pray with me? God, of all the things you teach us, this is one of the hardest. No doubt that's why there are so many places in your word that you teach us about our stuff because it can be such a distraction from you. It's not for your benefit, it is for ours because you want us desperately to share in your joy, share in the joy of a deep, intimate, all-consuming relationship with the creator and the lover of our souls. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to do just that. We pray these things in your name. Amen.